Hello, team, and welcome to Bureaucracy. I'm your host, Emily Gross, and I am so excited today because we are going to be talking about a very interesting case regarding Ginny Thomas, who is Judge Clarence Thomas's wife, and her tax to Mark Meadows. There's going to be there's a whole situation going on. Anyways, we're going to be talking a lot about judicial ethics and Judge Clarence Thomas and his case. And I have a very, very cool guest today named Charlie J. And he is an expert in all these things. I'm very excited. I'm also going to preemptively say that I am have a cold and I am just like one sneeze away from sounding like Janice from Friends. So I apologize <laughs> in advance and I just sound a little nasally and you're just going to have to keep drinking your beer to get over it. All right. Charlie, why don't you say hello to the team? Greetings. It's terrific to be here. I haven't really done a podcast before, so I'm kind of I'm kind of juiced about it myself. Um, I am on the law faculty at Indiana University at the Maurer School of Law. That's the, the Big Ten School. And I uh, write a lot about judicial ethics, and I have a, a, a treatise on the subject, and I've done a handbook for federal judges about disqualification. Uh, in my former life, prior to teaching, um, I worked for a federal judge for a year and then litigated in the federal courts for about five years and then became counsel to the House Judiciary Committee where I worked court reform legislation and my boss had the poor form to actually lose his election before I started teaching and so I took half a year and was a lobbyist for the federal judges before going into teaching. Uh, eons ago. Uh, and so I've been at this teaching business for about 25 years, but in a nutshell, that's, that's my background. Awesome. Yeah. So he is an expert. He also did not mention, but he's an Andrew Carnegie fellow because I did my research and I Googled him. So <laughs> very, very cool. An expert truly in all of this. And so Charlie, today we're going to be talking about what's been going on with Virginia Ginny Thomas and Judge Clarence Thomas. So obviously Judge Clarence Thomas is a Supreme Court justice and Ginny Thomas is his wife. So basically what's been going on is that the House has established a Judiciary Committee that is investigating the January 6th election. And in doing so, they're subpoenaing a lot of people that may have ties to this to try to see what kind of illegal activities happen, how the fuck people stormed the Capitol, like all those good questions. And so what they found, so Mark Meadows, who used to be Trump's chief of staff, one of his many rotating chief of staff, however, he was the final one before he lost the election, submitted about like 2,300 text messages um, over to the committee investigating. And in these text messages were about 30 text messages between him and Jenny Thomas, who is Judge Clarence Thomas's wife. So this comes down to what these text messages said, the fact that she is literally sleeping with a SCOTUS judge, <laughs> with a, you know, how big of a deal that is. <laughs> You know, like it was like a one night stand. I don't think people would care. But I mean, but they've been laying in bed for a hot second, you know, so that's why I think we have to care about it. Anyways, basically, these texts kind of played a lot into the conspiracy of that Trump actually won the election and that there was a lot of voter fraud. And so some of these texts, there's texts from November 2020 until just like kind of one text after the insurrection. She's calling on Mark Meadows. And this is also a big deal because it's showing how close she was to the Trump administration. And it's based, these texts are kind of saying something along the lines of, we need to overturn the election. This is all fraud. You need to try harder. And there's also talks about how she used to come into Trump, had direct access to Trump and would bring him hiring lists about people she thought he should hire, people she, she thought she should fire. 
and just basically about how she had so many ties and so much control in Trump and the Trump administration, which is shocking to people because she's tied by marriage, by law. You know, not all marriages are that healthy. Don't get me wrong. However, <laughs> the fact that they're still actively married, I think makes it a big thing, you know, and to someone who's supposed to be an impartial person, and especially as January 6th cases go up to the Supreme Court, which they most likely will, can Judge Clarence Thomas remain impartial? And that's where Charlie is going to come in and give us the lowdown on all these types of questions, all these questions about judicial ethics, and really kind of investigate what the fuck, like, <laughs> what should Judge Clarence Thomas do? And all right, Charlie, give us your initial <laughs> okay, thoughts. Okay, sure. I mean, I think that that for me, the challenge is that there are, yeah. there are really two things going on here. One is that we are in the 21st century in which we have power couples aplenty, in which we have professional couples where uh, they have their own professional lives and you can't expect uh, the uh, one half of the couple to stay home and, you know, as the saying goes, bake cookies in order to accommodate the, the, the other spouse. And so when one spouse is a judge, the fact that right. the other spouse has an active uh, professional life, which includes a political life, shouldn't really bother us that much. And, you know, I think while I understand where people are going to get fussy and concerned about the fact that someone's spouse is is involved uh, in, in politics in some way, that the reality of it is that we live in a day and age where we have to assume that a judge can can manage to be fair despite the fact that that their spouse has an interest of some kind. It's it's kind of like saying, can I be uh, a referee at at the the, the the Duke North Carolina game when my spouse has, is a fan of North Carolina? I mean, you can you can figure out a way for that to happen. What makes this different, I think, and and right. this is where it gets tough, right. is that Jenny Thomas has had a political career dating back decades, and I've been asked by the press periodically about her involvements in various things, like what about the fact that she was working for the Heritage Foundation that was trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act at the time the Obamacare decision was coming out. Uh, should Clarence Thomas have recused from that? And I thought, right. probably not, because, I mean, yeah, she has an axe to grind. Yes, she's involved, but that really didn't, you know, doesn't bother me. What is different here is that Jenny Thomas is not just aligned. She is not just, you know, following the, you know, I think the election was stolen line, which is her right. You know, that's her right. I think it's 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 a position that's out there. It's it's a little bit extreme, but she has every right to to advocate for that position if she wants to. What makes this difference is that she is part of the story. Right. She is part of the story. She is, you know, engaged in January 6th protests. She is there, uh, you know, writing 29 times to Mark Meadows, basically urging him to, you know, to basically overturn the a lawful election. Uh, and against that backdrop, it's not just that, you know, mm -hmm. can Justice Thomas be, be perceived as impartial in that setting where, you know, her views are that extreme and she is that much part of the story, but you know, is there a very real risk that he's acquired information about the dispute that others don't have through her? You know, that that she, in one of these right. email messages, one of these, one of these texts, she reports speaking about this issue to her, quote, best friend, close quote. And, you know, I think many people assume that was Justice Thomas. And so while they do, on, as a matter of public record, keep their lives separate, at, at some point, a reasonable person has to look at that and say, when you are this exercised, when you are this agitated, Jenny Thomas was, bearing in mind that she got so exercised about it that 
in February of that year, she apologized to Thomas's clerks for getting so excited and so involved that she may have created discord among former Thomas clerks. I mean, with that level of involvement, I think you are looking at a slightly different situation than you are in the routine case where someone's spouse is involved in an issue, has an ax to grind with an issue. A big part of this, too, is that, like, you know, she was at the Stop the Steal rally that then right. led to the insurrection yep. uh, of the Capitol, you know, and although she says she was not a planner of it, she was still there and sent texts to Mark Meadows after the fact saying her and a lot of her other people were pissed off at Mike Pence for not doing more to stop the process of actually counting the votes and of ensuring that there was a fair transfer of power. Right. And you can make the the case for saying the fact that you know that she is articulating some fairly extreme positions that that only a third of the public at this point takes her view of what happened that that the election was stolen uh, which is also horrifying and, that a third of the public takes that view well it is it's a counterfactual it is a counterfactual point of view you are you you know do you have a right to take counterfactual yeah. points of view you do and and the mere fact that she was in that group by itself doesn't mean that her husband has to disqualify, I don't think, but when she is actively taking part in the events that the January 6th you know, special committee is investigating, you know, that she pops up in the record um, of the January 6th investigating committee, to me, that is what takes us a click beyond. And I mean, the other thing I will add is that this ends up, you know, this can very easily look like you know we're trying to tattoo soap bubbles here that there's nothing there and that we're just trying to sort of say well can you be impartial in this sort of gaseous sort of way the law is really you know an important part of this analysis and 28 usc section 455 that sort of impress you with my erudition as a law professor here my pointy-headed academic stuff yeah that, ooh, that, yeah uh, i know i know <laughs> i thank you for the ooh. i mean the that it, it basically the, the operative law has two has a bunch of provisions you can't you got to disqualify yourself if your spouse is a is a party or if you were a lawyer in the proceeding or if you have a financial conflict but there are two pieces that are especially relevant here one is you have to disqualify yourself if your impartiality might reasonably be questioned and you have to disqualify yourself if you have access to disputed personal access to disputed facts and to me that is the operative question and so what pisses me off a little bit is when people like george will jump he was not a lawyer and who is a public intellectual at a level where i i worry sometimes that he just sort of figures he can say things and it will be believed where he sees this as a, a kerfuffle about appearances, meaning he's trivializing the importance of this issue, when the operative law basically was designed to deal with appearances. It, it says you got to disqualify when your impartiality might reasonably be questioned. That is when it looks bad, when it looks bad to a reasonable person. Why does the law do that? Because for years they didn't have that there. For years you could only disqualify yourself if you had like a financial conflict or if your mother was a party. And what they discovered was People weren't disqualifying themselves in hellacious situations where the public was looking at it and saying, this is terrible. And so one possibility would be to say, okay, right. okay, you need to disqualify yourself in addition when you are biased. But the problem there is that most people don't think of themselves as biased, including judges. What we learn is this concept that's right. called, this concept and it, it, right. the psychologists call naive realism, where we all fairly assume that other people filter the world through their biases. But we, we think, view it objectively, that you're biased, I'm objective. 
and that, that mm -hmm. I don't have these biases that you right. suffer from. When judges feel that way, they think I can be fair and impartial. It's you who think who are being biased and thinking I can't. But the reality of it is that we that that's a psychological state of affairs that applies to everyone. The way we fix that is by creating a standard in which we don't require the judge to disqualify only when he's biased, but when a reasonable person looking at that judge would say, I think you're biased. And to my way of thinking, in this case, that is triggered when the judge's spouse is not is so actively a part of the subject that's the dispute before the court that she, you know, that her emails or texts are part of the record. You know, and also, I would love for you to go into this as well, because I know that there was a situation regarding January 6th, made it to the Supreme Court, and it was denied. And everyone agreed to deny it and say they're not going to hear it, except Judge Thomas. Right. What was his rationale? Well, I mean, I think that... And what was that case? No, I mean, I think the case, the case was simply one in which the issue was whether the White House was obliged to release this information to the January 6th committee and all but... But Thomas said uh, yes, and you know, I and I don't recall that Thomas offered an explanation or what it was. I think it does lead to some head scratching when it's an eight to one vote, and the one vote against releasing documents to the January sixth committee is the judge whose spouse has documents embedded in the release of information there. And you know, to me. That is unfortunate. I'm not prepared to infer too much about Judge Thomas's bias from that eight to one vote because we don't have a good explanation for it. But you put that together with everything else, and I think people can can reasonably worry about it. And you know, I will say one thing that I want to throw out there. It's not directly responsive right. to your question. One of the things that mm -hmm. concerns me and should concern me is in times this politically polarized. You know, it's very easy to look at someone like me and say, yeah. well, you're just being a liberal zealot who wants to get rid of Clarence Thomas because, you know, he's going to be a vote that you're probably not going to like. So therefore, I mean, and this is what Senator McConnell said last week. This is just a bunch of liberals trying to get rid of the conservative justice. And I think to me, the, the one thought I'd like to throw out there is I haven't used this sort of in my writing or anything, but I think that there's something I'd call a golden rule gut check. I mean, that the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them to do unto mm -hmm. you. And if the tables were turned, would you feel the same way or differently? So if this were 2016 and yeah, Donald Trump- because we know Mitch McConnell goes by that so frequently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's the problem, right? I mean, but I think to people who are serious about this, I mean, your audience, right. I mean, to your audience, you ask, you ask yourself, it's 2016. Uh, Donald Trump has lost the popular election, but won the electoral vote. And let's suppose, let's let's pretend mm -hmm. that a bunch of, de well, it's not pretending, a bunch of Democrats said electoral college, you should refuse to approve uh, the president. But they weren't very many of them. But let's assume that there's this groundswell of support that that right. that Hillary Clinton gets up and says, I've been, def you know, in all the battleground states, fraud. Barack Obama is still president, says fraud. And everybody is out there litigating. The litigating it, litigators are losing. But meanwhile, let's assume on the Supreme Court, which is poised to decide this result, let's assume that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Marty Ginsburg, is actively involved in an attempt to overturn the election. He's writing the White, the White House. He is participating right. in protests. He's not going so far as to getting himself arrested, but he's actively involved. Would you... And now the question becomes, would you trust Ruth Bader Ginsburg to resolve this dispute when her husband's an active part of the record and an active part of the case? If your answer is, well, no to Claire, I mean, I'm cool with Clarence Thomas sitting, but I'm not cool 
with Ruth Bader Ginsburg sitting, I think there's a problem there that you're not surviving the, the golden rule gut check. On the other hand, if you if you don't have any more problem with one or the other, then let's have a conversation. I think you're wrong, but that's when you can have a conversation on the merits. Right. You know, where good people can say, I disagree with you, totally. but it's not about party. It's not about partisanship. It's about the situation and whether the situation calls for disqualification. But I gotta tell you, I bet that McConnell and his ilk, and most people like that, are one-sided about it. That when it's their guy who gets to preside, they're all for it, and when it's their opponent who gets to preside, they're all again it, and we gotta get past that as best we can. Yeah, what gave that away with the whole Merrick Garland situation or what? Yeah, I guess, um, no cynicism here, uh, Emily. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 huh. if, it, if it looks fishy and it smells fishy, maybe it's fishy, a fish. chances are it's gonna end in bullshit. <laughs> yeah, perchance. You know, and I think that like comes down to the thing where it's like, Unless they have a terrible marriage and it's all for show, which is so possible, and it could be like a Kellyanne Conway and her husband type of situation, just the chances are that they have talked about it unless they have... And also, Ginny Thomas seems like she absolutely runs the household. She seems terrifying. However, it just is so unlikely that they've never discussed this, that this has not been going on for years and years and years, and that he has not heard some things that would make him... That would make him entirely impartial in these cases. And this also ties into the question, which I'm about to ask you. We know that this entire country is so freaking polarized. It is like oil and water. However, and the Supreme Court, the concept of being an impartial body is absolute bullshit. But in these types of cases, is there any way that there's still any type of like impartiality? Impartiality? Is that a word? Yeah. I don't know if that's it, a word, it, 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 it isn't, but it should be. I, I'm, I'm all for it. Partiality. There, yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. And I think one, one I, I, I position myself more as a centrist here. I mean, in, uh, in uh, full, full disclosure, I, I, uh, taught a, a law school class with Joe Biden. I've known him for 30 years. Uh, we're not fr good friends, but I do know him, and, and I am a registered Democrat, but I, 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 I position myself as a centrist. I don't feel the need to second guess Thomas, uh, either Jenny or Clarence, when they say they don't you know, actively uh, uh, discuss these things. They have their separate spheres, and they don't. I mean, I think that, that part of me doubt is on your on board with you that if she is there publicly apologizing to his clerks for her involvement in January 6th and her involvement in the election how is it possible that he didn't know she was saying that and therefore know that she was involved I think that's a little odd so he knows at some level she's involved but maybe he doesn't know the specifics but here's the important thing and again we're reverting back to law in a case from the 1980s the Supreme Court dealt with a case involving a judge who was presiding over a matter at the same time as he was sitting on the board of trustees at, at a university, which is okay. But at those board meetings, the subject came up of buying or selling, I think it was a hospital, that was the subject of what he was doing as a judge. And he didn't disqualify himself. And what he said later was, I was zoning out at the meetings. I didn't, rem I didn't, you know, I wasn't paying attention to the fact that, that this was, <laughs> this was on the docket. I was just sort of, and, and what yeah. the Supreme Court said is, we can't, the reasonable person, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's true that you were just basically a terrible waste of perfectly good skin just sitting there. But a reasonable person fully informed of the circumstances would doubt that. A reasonable person would say, you're at these meetings, you heard what was going on. And so even if it is true that Thomas and his spouse don't talk this about this at home, you know, I have doubts about it. But the important point isn't whether I have doubts about it. The important point is, would a reasonable person doubt, given the level of her anxiety and agitation, would the reasonable person doubt 
his claim that they don't talk about it at all. And I think that, to me, is the, the critical point. So for that reason, I think, his impartiality might reasonably be questioned. As to your subsequent question, which is, can is there any hope for, for, for an impartial court? I mean, to me, perfect impartiality is impossible. Nobody is perfectly impartial. We are all creatures of right. the planet. We all see the world filtered through our race, our gender, our ideology, our background, our education, our experience. And what we hope is However, that- However, if anyone asks my grandma, she will say I'm perfect and I will stand by that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Anyways, Indeed. Continue. Indeed. Therein lies the point, right? I mean, yeah. I think, and and so <laughs> the point, though, is that they don't need to be perfectly impartial. They need to be impartial enough for government work. And by that, I mean that if the law says X, mm -hmm. they follow, they do X. And if the law says Y, they do Y. And I think it's, it's, it's often overlooked that the Supreme Court doesn't handle that many cases. They issue opinions on 80 to 90 cases a year. Over half of them are unanimous decisions. So I think there are times where the law is relatively clear and these guys are acculturated to follow the law and they do. The problem is they pick a lot of cases that are up for grabs, where the law is unclear, where the lower courts are divided, and they have to resolve things with the tools available to them. The law isn't clear. Which facts are the most important aren't clear. And so they have to bring their backgrounds, education, common sense, and experience to bear in deciding. Their ideologies matter there. Do I think it's, are they corrupt? No. Do I think that they're less than impartial? Well, less than imperfectly impartial. But I do think most of the time they're trying to follow the law as they understand it, even though a good conservative and a good liberal will look at the law a little differently. And that's okay by me. Where it becomes a problem is when you have interests, where you have conflicts that are going to compromise your ability, your perceived ability, to interpret the law as best you understand it. You know, the average person, by the way, doesn't, isn't bothered by the fact that judges are influenced by their backgrounds and so on. They don't like nakedly partisan judges. They don't like partisans who, judges who are carrying water for a political party or a political cause. And so that's where I think we worry about the Clarence Thomases of the world if we're in a situation where we have a reason to believe that you know, because of his wife's involvement, he is in, he is he is dug in in a way that it's not just that all else being equal, he will see the the world through a lens that's more conservative than liberal. That's cool. What's not cool is that he could be influenced by these you know these near term these near influences in ways that are just trouble that are just go beyond that. So let's say he does recuse himself. What does that look like? And then can we also go through how a judge is impeached? There are two ways it can happen. This, the statute says, I mean, I've given two reasons for why I think he probably needs to recuse himself. Before anyone asks, the statute tells the judge, if one of these reasons is triggered, you know, if you're if if you've got a financial conflict, you got to step down. Period. What that means is, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, is that you simply do a notation to the file that you don't you're not participating in the case. Uh, the clerk reports that you didn't participate. Doesn't explain why. Um, and that's the way it works. Um, on the other hand, and this anticipates the, the follow-up question that you had, if the judge doesn't disqualify, I mean, for, oh, I guess the second possibility is a party will affirmatively move the judge to disqualify. They will request the judge to disqualify, even if he hasn't on his own. And then the judge has to make the call. And again, the judge doesn't have to issue an opinion explaining, which is weird to me. Uh, the judge can simply refuse or accept. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes the judge issues an opinion, but the judge then declines to disqualify. 
I would love to not have to explain my decisions. That'd be great. So the fact that I, as an average private citizen, have to, to most people, uh, the fact that a SCOTUS judge does not is absurd. Anyways. I mean, no, I think really, I mean, one of the the kind of centerpieces of the law and our confidence in the rule of law is that judges offered reasoned opinions for their decisions. And I think what we have is that, and to some extent, uh, decisions regarding... uh, disqualification are the bastard children of of American law, that they don't get litigated the same way. You don't have both parties providing fully briefed. You don't typically have hearings on it, and you don't have judges issuing rulings with an opinion. And what's even weirder is the judge whose impartiality is questioned is the final word on his own impartiality. The judge is grading his own homework, which is very, very weird. It's stupid. At the Supreme Court level, there is no mechanism for the court as a whole to review a judge who is is has refused to disqualify himself. And you know, I think as long as everybody is cautious, as long as everybody is serious, as long as everybody is not openly, you know, polarized, you can hope that judges will err on the side of disqualification and and won't embarrass their own court. Because there is, I think, there's there there really is some some empirical support for the proposition that judges take the the respect of their colleagues seriously. They don't want to humiliate their colleagues. And so they soften their positions a little bit in in light of, you know, wanting to maintain collegiality and their respect. But the more more polarized you get on a court, the, the harder that becomes to maintain. And so what do we have? We've got the only relief we have at the Supreme Court level is impeachment, which is that a judge can be removed by impeachment in the House and conviction in the Senate uh, for high crimes and misdemeanors. The process is the same for judges as it is for presidents. So folks who endured two impeachments with Donald Trump are familiar with that. But when it comes to judges, we actually, unlike presidents, we have removed a bunch of judges via impeachment, never a Supreme Court justice. And while we did, the last one did get removed for non-disqualification, it's a cold day in hell when that happens. And the one who did get removed for non-disqualification got removed for reasons far more egregious than those affecting Clarence Thomas. I mean, it was a it was a dude who was whole, presiding over a case. He was a federal judge in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And his buddy, uh, an old t- a lawyer who he'd known for decades, was litigating the case. And while the case was, was under advisement, he rode his buddy out to the middle of the of a lake and hit him up for five thousand dollars for a gift for his son um, because he had he was basically cash poor because he had a gambling addiction and so the lawyer feeling like he had no alternative ponied up the, the five or was it three or five thousand uh, dollars and then later on the opposing counsel moved to disqualify the judge not knowing about this gift but thinking you guys go way back I think you guys are too close I think you should disqualify yourself from the case and the judge said I got no reason to disqualify myself from this case and it was later discovered that he was basically twisting this guy's arm off to give him money and didn't disqualify that was the grounds for disqual- for for impeaching him it took something that extreme so Clarence Thomas, yeah. well, he should disqualify. Yeah. yeah, he should okay. disqualify, but I don't think it's that extreme. Um, and so what that tells you is impeachment ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. There is no disciplinary process involving Supreme Court justices, the way there is lower federal court justices. So all you got is, you know, their their good faith. And, you know, I think that, that we are to a point where at a minimum we ought to think well, about crea- creating a mechanism where the court can rule on its own members. If, if one guy goes crazy and refuses to disqualify when he's got to, the court ought to empower itself to basically be able to override that guy. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are now looking into the courts and seeing like, hey, you know, society is not what it used to be and it's kind of fucked up and people are kind of terrible and politics is real dirty. How do we <laughs> keep the courts? Because the concept of lifetime appointment is kind of insane, you know, and there is no real giving it back to the people to really feel like they have control over what goes on in the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts on that? Like, where do you think the Supreme Court should make reforms? How do we make the Supreme Court more of a fair institution? Honestly, my view is that with the Supreme Court being as political as it is, that you might want to think about having a one 15-year term for federal judges and off. But you start subjecting them to reselection, and the next thing you know, they're pandering to voters, they're pandering to whoever reselects them. And so you don't want that either. Yeah. You want judges who are immunized from that. And so part of the reason right. that we have this system that we have is because the founding generation saw judges who were subject to removal by the king, and then they saw judges who were dicked with by state legislatures before the Constitutional Convention, and so they wanted to immunize them from all of that. And, you know, for the most part, it's worked in the sense that public confidence in the courts has been stable far longer than public confidence in the other branches of government where we hold them accountable and electable and so on. So that as of 2019, public support for the court, for the Supreme Court, was at 68%. Compare that to Congress and the White House. That's crazy. But then, as of last year, the Gallup... That's insane! <laughs> I know. As of last year, Gallup dropped it through the floor to 40%. And so where you're at is, is and what's happening is that I think that the court is becoming increasingly political seeming, that liberals are angry at the court right. when it, when, you know, with the new Trump appointees and the, and the games they're playing with Merrick Garland and with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and so on, all of these recent games, whereas the Republicans are nervous about Biden being president and who he's going to be appointing. And so with every new decision, public opinion shifts back and forth. Note that that's, a, that's its own problem that what you want is what's called diffuse support for the courts. People who say, I trust in an apolitical court and I can live with its decisions, you know, whether I agree with them or not. But what you're seeing is vast mood swings within the public where, you know, what have you done for me lately? And I'm going to be pissed off at you if you give me a, a pro a pro liberal decision and I'm conservative and vice versa. And that really, I think, is more long-term threatening to the court's legitimacy. And I think we're to a point where the court has long had this kind of little story, which is that we just follow the law. This past fall, several conservative members of the court went on a what, I, what I've called a, an I'm not a political hack tour, you know, where they, where they did public speaking, where they basically say, I just follow the law. And honestly, I believe them in yeah. the sense that I don't <laughs> Bullshit. think- Bullshit. I don't, I don't think they're hacks in the sense that I think that when they reach a decision that is conservative, I don't think it's because I'm a good Republican and I'm gonna reach a Republican result. It's because the, there are two plausible right. interpretations of law and as a conservative, I see the law in a, in a particular way and it influences my thinking. I don't think that's intellectually corrupt, but to say that my ideology doesn't affect my decision is your nose is growing when you say that. I mean, even if it's subconscious, you know, right. that, that, you know, I may think of strict construction of the Constitution as the right way to go, but it helps if I'm a conservative and that's the way I look at it. Or if I 
believe in the Constitution as a living document subject to change. Well, that assists me if I'm a liberal looking for uh, an evolving way of looking at constitutionalism. And so that's okay, but it's time to stop telling the public it's all about the law and nothing else. And because it is a an increasingly right. political body, that's why I'm beginning to, find, to, to sort of support the idea that maybe it's time to think about a term limit where, yes, they're appointed for life, and I'm mm -hmm. still okay with that, but 15 years on the Supreme Court and you go down to the lower courts for the rest of your career. That, you know, we don't have, a con have to have a constitutional amendment, but we can have a way in which they're only making policy as a Supreme Court. And I use that term advisedly. They, they are making policy. Uh, you know, when the law is unclear and yeah, they have to figure totally. it out, it's policy making, even though they don't like that term. That, you know, do that right. for a limited period of time. You know, I think it's just wrong to have someone appointed by Ronald Reagan, for God's sake, being the policymaker decades later. And and so the same thing would be true for, you know, at some point, a Clinton appointee needs to not be making policy anymore. And I think having a having a term limit might be yes. good that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Out with the old, in with the new. No offense, Charlie. Yeah. I know you're kind of a boomer and I love talking to you, but it's time for the youth. <laughs> we need to get the young Oh, no, no, in. no. You're you not. Know? I mean, one of the nice things about being a law professor is that I live a fairly isolated life in the sense of, you know, I've got my spouse and, you know, and she and I do our fair share of grumbling about, you know, kids throwing balls onto our lawn and whatnot. But but for the most part, we're I'm surrounded by 20-somethings. And I'm going to be, you know, giving the, the I've yeah. been asked to give the graduation speech to our law school class. My attitude is our time has been and gone. I oh, mean, that, that, that we are clinging to power. Uh, it's time right now for yeah. the, Gen, the Gen Xers to step up, and it's time for the millennials uh, to really assume leadership, and it's time for the, the Gen Z folks to start becoming politically active. And I think that from their vantage point, yeah. the boomers have fucked things up in a major way, and I don't like... I don't like generational fights in the sense that, particularly when I'm on the short end of every stick when it comes to that, right? I check every lousy box. I am white. I am old. I am male. I am fat. I mean, n none of these things work in my favor. But 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 I am of the I, I am of the opinion that it is time for new leadership. Yeah. And and I think the problem is that our generation has beaten down younger generations to the point where. You know, there there's a measure yes. of skepticism and timidity about stepping about stepping up. And so, yeah, getting back to our subject, a 15 year term where once they step down from the Supreme Court, they continue to sit as lower court judges means that every president is guaranteed a couple of new placements and they can appoint people anywhere from their 30s to their 60s. Right. Doesn't matter to me, but getting new blood, new ideas in there. So you don't have people who are saying, well, back when I was a pup in the Truman administration, that doesn't help anybody. Brief question. Uh, what exactly does the Constitution say about judicial appointments again regarding the sure. Supreme Court? What it says is... Is there any... Yeah. Anything I mean, regarding term limits? There, yeah. <laughs> no. There is. What it says is that uh, mm. you you are mm. uh, you are tenured during good behavior, uh, and so and good behavior. Okay. I think you can argue that point, but I think most people understand that bad behavior that ends your term term is basically limited to situations, for the most part, people agree with this, where you've committed high crimes and misdemeanors and are subject to impeachment. And just so we understand, you know, this, right. this is a product of the 1700s uh, when judges were getting thrown out every time they said something that disagreed with the king. And, and so in 1702, they right. created 
tenured during good behavior. And it was sort of perceived as a protection, not just for judges, but for the people. And so there's a real honored tradition there. And I get it. Um, and so I'm not opposed to, I'm not proposing a constitutional amendment to say, get rid of that piece of the Constitution. I'm saying that if what you say to a new judge is, right. you get to be a Supreme Court judge for 15 years, and then you continue to enjoy tenure during good behavior, you just get shipped down to a different court for the remainder of your career. I think that would be constitutional. Exactly. Good to know. You know, my yeah. uh, A push, my AP US history class was... I guess like six years, seven years ago now. So need a reminder. Um, <laughs> Mine dates back to the but, 1970s. So let's get back to the topic at hand. Do you think Judge Thomas is going to recuse himself? No, no. I mean, I think that, that um, no. I mean, first of all, Jenny Thomas has been involved in a lot of things. She's been a, a, an active, a political conservative activist since high school. And while I have made the argument that the vast majority of those activities should not have required Thomas to disqualify himself. I think this is different for the reasons I've talked about. But my perception is that Justice Thomas, in his heart of hearts, believes that when people fling ethical improprieties, you know, or alleged ethical improprieties at him, he feels as though it is a, a partisan political ploy designed to make him miserable for no better reason than he is a political conservative. So for example, uh, you know, the code of conduct, the Supreme Court does not have a code of conduct applicable to itself, which strikes me as crazy. I think it's a terrible idea. But the code of conduct applicable to lower court judges, oh which, right. you know, <laughs> that's the, so upsetting. It is troubling. The, the, there is a code applicable to lower court judges. And what it says is, look, you got to be careful not to show up at fundraising events for organizations where you're a featured speaker. You don't get to be a shill for fundraisers. What that means is that lower court judges don't get to show up at fundraisers for the Federalist Society or the American Constitution Society and be a featured speaker that can be a draw for tickets. Thomas and Scalia did it anyway, and there's an argument to be made for why that ought to be okay, but the reality of it is that it wasn't, and liberals yelled at Thomas and Scalia for doing it, and they both just said, you know, the explanation is from their vantage point, this for is- For people who are listening, Charlie just did the uh, fuck you sign. Anyways, continue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. They were not entirely yeah. wrong in the sense that there are liberals agitating to make life miserable for conservative judges, and they perceive this as more of the same. But the point is that against the backdrop of a history in which liberals have tried to make Justice Thomas's life difficult, he sees this as more of the same. And so particularly when you have people like Mitch McConnell getting up and saying this is just another liberal tactic to disqualify a, a conservative judge, that gives him the cover he needs to just stay put. And I will say, by by the way, among lawyers and, and legal ethics guys, uh, we're almost united, as far as I can tell. That includes Richard Painter, who is at the University of Minnesota and worked for the Bush administration. That includes an American Enterprise Institute scholar who is likewise on board with this. I mean, this is more than partisan. This one, and to me, I'm really bending over backwards not to be partisan about this. Um, and so I don't think that's there. But I think Justice Thomas is is really believes that ever since his appointment, he has been uh, essentially dogged by liberals who want to do him dirty. And I think his his view is this is just another one of those examples. Which is really unfortunate because this is obviously, like you said, and like a lot of other legal experts are of the same opinion, that this is a very different situation, very different case, because Ginny Thomas's ties are so insanely close 
to the Trump administration. And it is near impossible for Judge Thomas to have not been having conversation or just at least know about certain situations that would make him completely impartial. And like, that's why you have jurors for like every court. They always ask, have you seen anything? Do you know any of this stuff? Because they're trying to make sure that you're as impartial as possible. I guarantee you, if it was a jury and someone was like, hey, oh, your wife is super tied into this. They'd be like, sorry, you're disqualified from sitting on this. You yep. know? Yep, and I think the like, history the history of it, the, 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 bizarre, <laughs> the bizarre history of it is that in English common law, judges were presumed impartial. In other words, that second-guessing a judge's impartiality was like second-guessing God. And that the reason we had jurors was so that jurors could be a check on the judge. We cared about juror impartiality more mm-hmm. because they could step in and prevent the judge from being awful. And and so we're to a point now where jurors are right up there with Bigfoot sightings that, that you get you know 1% of cases going to juries. So jurors are not really operating as a meaningful check on judges anymore. We depend on mechanisms to mm-hmm. make sure that judges are fair. And I'm just not sure uh, that that you know the presumptions that we have that you know which err on the side of sure it's fine for him to sit um, we need to we need to include the appropriate checks there the odds are terrific that something will work its way up that direction at least to the stage of lawyers seeking supreme court review and 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 Clarence Thomas will be among those having to decide whether to to grant review or not so i think that there is a very real possibility that we are going to see cases coming coming before the court you know and i think you are you are right that we can throw our hands in the air and sort of fling ourselves on our pencils over this um but I think that that the better way to look at it is maybe this will be a catalyst for certain kinds of reform. For example, I think that that we're going to keep the drumbeat mm-hmm. going on having the Supreme Court develop a code of conduct for itself, where maybe we won't do a disciplinary process, and I understand right. that. But at least you'll say the press, you know, people like you can wave their own code of conduct in their face and say, you clearly violated this. What do you say about it? You can't do that if they don't have a code mm-hmm. in front of them. I think that it might also cause the Chief Justice, and, and I respect the Chief Justice's interest in the legitimacy and integrity and legacy of the court, they might well think, the way some state Supreme Courts have, about a mechanism whereby, in an emergency, they can jump in and decide to review the decision of one of their members on you know, whether they disqualify themselves or not. I mean, even if they don't use it 90% of the time, or 99% of the time, it allows for that possibility that you know the public will at least feel okay knowing that this isn't just up to the one guy, that there is a way we can have others go along with it. Right. And if the others are willing to go along with it, well, maybe I shouldn't be as worried about it if we have this mechanism. And you know, there are state Supreme Courts that do, and I think that is something worth thinking about. Moral of the story is nothing's really going to happen regarding this. Jenny Thomas is probably going to still be on her fuck shit. And Clarence Thomas is probably not going to recuse himself because he sees himself as impartial, whether or not that may be the case. And we'll just see where the tides take us. Charlie, any other thoughts? No, no. I mean, and I think the only the only thing, I mean, I think that, that you can look at the glass half full, half empty, or the glass full of shit. And I think I want to make sure that I'm taking a glass half full approach. I don't think anything you've said is incorrect. I think nothing is going to happen and might be a little bit too pessimistic. I think that that we could, if the, oh, yeah. if the Supreme Court yes. resolves to create a code of conduct for itself, I feel as though that is a small win. Uh, if the Supreme Court thought hard and long about a mm-hmm. way in which they could create a mechanism to review the decisions of one of its members when they decide, decline to disqualify, I would think of that 
as a win. And I also think that if, as a consequence of all of this hullabaloo, the court starts thinking longer and harder about Section 455A and its terms, which are you got to disqualify yourself when your impartiality might reasonably be questioned, even if we can't move Justice Thomas, can we get the conversation started through, you know, events like this, where the court realizes that its legitimacy, which is in a state of decline, can sometimes be helped by the occasional judge stepping down. I mean, I think we've been bitching and moaning about Thomas. The flip side is think about, you know, God willing, Justice Jackson, who's coming into play very soon, who stepped down from the Harvard affirmative action case, or as announced she would. It's not clear to me from the operative law that she would have to. Uh, She was at Harvard. It's not clear how actively she was involved with the affirmative action policy there. If she had nothing to do with it, I don't think she would be required to disqualify. But I'm glad she did. I'm glad she said that she did because for the sake of the order and public perception, boy, is that a good idea. And so, you know, I think that, that we have that story, which I think we can celebrate a little bit, as maybe something to build on. And so I'm not prepared to go saying, well, this is a this was a pointless thing. <laughs> this, nothing's going to happen here. Maybe something will. Yeah. I don't think, even if it's not Justice Thomas disqualifying himself. So hopefully there will be a silver lining in conversations regarding the That's Supreme Court of doing a code of conduct or looking at term limits or something along the lines to kind of keep it as a ruling body that people actually trust and hope doesn't just completely play into partisan politics. Right. But in regarding the Ginny Thomas and Judge Clarence Thomas case, unfortunately, it looks like Judge Clarence Thomas will not recuse himself and will still be a potential ruling factor in any January 6th uh, questions that make its way to the Supreme Court. Damn. That being said, Charlie, I have no other questions. Are there any other comments you would like? To no, say? you've asked the right questions. I've run out of things to say. I'm, I'm good. Perfect. Love to hear that. <laughs> Anyways, this has been a great podcast. Thank you so much for coming on it. I am your host, Emily Gross, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Bureaucracy.